first known rules of golf were drawn up in 1744 by the gentlemen golfers of Edinburgh in Leith, Scotland. Since then, the game has changed dramatically. Golf courses, equipment, and not least the rules. So where do I go when I want to learn about the rules of the game today? Well, I go to the Golf Rules Questions podcast with Blakey and Roscoe, of course. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Before we get into episode 54 with one of Victoria's best referees, Barry Tellman, we just need to go over the GRQ OTW for episode 53. The question was about whether you could move your ball marker whilst the ball that was played from on the putting green is in motion. So the answer can be found in rule 11.3, which talks about a ball in motion and the restrictions on what can be moved that may affect where that ball ends up. When there is a ball in motion, you cannot lift or move a loose impediment or movable obstruction, except you can remove a removed flagstick. You can remove or remove another ball at rest on the putting green or other player equipment. Under other player equipment, you aren't permitted to move a ball marker that is being used to mark a ball anywhere on the course, including on the putting green. In moving the ball marker, that could have affected where Stewart's ball came to rest. Ross incurred a general penalty under Rule 11.3. Hey everyone, episode 54 of the Golf Rules Questions podcast is back. New year, 2022. Hope everyone is having a great time so far. Um, I've recently acquired, no, not acquired, uh, got uh, the COVID virus. So the last seven days has been staying at home and Recovering from that, looking forward to getting back to uh, my job at the golf club. But this episode, episode 54, we have another fantastic uh, guest, Barry Talman, who uh, Barry and I have refereed many tournaments together so far and even gone away on some uh, education rules nights and stuff like that, haven't we, Barry? Yep, yep. So uh, welcome, uh, Barry, to the podcast. Thanks, episode, episode 54 and uh hope everyone enjoys uh the chat that we're going to have uh about how you got into golf rules and and uh, all the experiences you've had so far in this game yep no worries well if you want to know how i got into golf rules it's quite an unusual route i am um, i was playing in a club championship at riversdale and uh walking up the second next to our practice fairway i backhanded a ball back onto the practice fairway and one of the players in the group called me out for practicing and disqualified me <laughs> and not knowing the rules very well uh i uh rang then uh vga and spoke to david greenhill and david greenhill when he stopped laughing said uh, that's not really a really good thing to happen um we've got a club rules night next thursday would you like to do it so I said, oh, yeah, why not? So I went along and did the uh, the club rules with with David and uh, scored sufficiently well that uh, I went and questioned him on which one I got wrong and why. And uh, we had a discussion about the wording of the rule, uh, which ended up with him saying, well, next month we're doing a state level. Would you like to do that too? So within about a month, I'd done the state level and... Uh, Within about four months, I was doing the Australian Open. So it was a pretty rapid ascent. Uh, 
and I've been doing rules ever since. What year was that, Barry? Oh, I don't know. It's got to be at least 25 years ago. So I was trying to work it out. Uh, it's got to be 25 years now since I did that. Yeah, wow. And with the, hang on, take us through this one. So you backhanded a practice ball. Yeah, and the one of the players in the group called me for practicing on the course because I'd um, because I'd hit this ball back to the um, to the practice fairway, and I was naive. I twenty five years ago, I didn't know the rules of golf like like we do now, and I was naive enough to believe it. And what did Mister Greenhill say when he, uh, when he 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 fell off the chair laughing? He thought it was very very funny and said, "Don't be ridiculous. You shouldn't have been disqualified." <laughs> uh, and then immediately took it as an opportunity to recruit somebody into the rules. So I, I said, yeah, no worries. I'll be in that and went in because I'd come off um, umpiring hockey and uh, I was looking for something to do uh, apart from hitting a ball badly. So uh, it, it was a welcome opportunity. Do you see any uh, parallels between ho refereeing hockey and refereeing golf? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's this, and I think that's what's made my pathway in this really easy. In that, in both instances, you're dealing with elite athletes, um, particularly at the higher levels, and you've got to realise that they're playing for the, well, particularly in professional ranks, they're playing for their livelihood. Elite amateur ranks are playing for a chance to play for their livelihood. So, whenever they're in a situation that's going to involve a rule, apart from the simple ones, they're they're going to be under stress, and You've got to deal with it appropriately, um, and you. you uh, there's two things to rules. There's knowing some of the rules and being able to operate some of the rules, but there's also knowing how to operate with players, and I think that's where my hockey background has really helped. Yeah, I'm surprised. Uh, that that's fantastic. How did you get into hockey rules? Um, well, I was playing. Um, this is going way back um, with the late Harvey Ashton when he was umpiring. Um, uh, Harvey, of course, just for everyone's knowledge, was a councillor for Golf Victoria and was president of Box Hill and passed away last late last year. Um, he was umpiring at the time. I was playing at Kew down on Willsmere Park on grass before they had synthetic surfaces. And uh, Harvey didn't think much of my playing and I didn't think much of his umpiring. <laughs> so, so we had a bit of a discussion and uh, it was pointed out to me that probably playing State League One was probably as far as I was ever going to go. And might I like to pick up a whistle? So they convinced me to start umpiring, and that led to quite a long time of working through to from just umpiring at local club level through to umpiring international matches. And oh wow, what was so? Did you referee at any kind of World Cup, Olympics? No, I didn't get to go to. We had a couple of really probably outstanding referees at the time on the world stage. So I didn't get to go overseas at any stage. I did umpire a number of internationals in Australia. Probably the standout was the um, a, a test match between Spain and Australia in Melbourne, uh, where I was unfortunate enough to have a give a goal in the first minute of the game. Unfortunately, it was to Spain. And as I ran back to the centre, I was thinking, there goes my umpiring career. But it didn't transpire that way. But no, I did... Uh, a series of Australian. In those days, they had the senior championship, which was, which is run like a carnival, and so you'd go interstate. I think I umpired in every state except Perth. Uh, so that was a fantastic time. Oh, well, that's uh, and so when did you um, give up the boots or hang up the boots for well for uh, hockey? Would, that, that would have been that would have been uh, early early to mid eighties. 
And so, you know, the transfer to something else with rules in it was, uh, was quite sensational. Of course, the, what, what got me really into rules too was apart from doing the rules thing was um, it came round. I think I might have done the, um, I think I actually might have compressed that. I might have done the club level um, in, in about March or something and the state level was in September. But in between, there were pennant finals. And I said to David, uh, David Greenhill, can I go down and watch one of the pennant, pennant finals and see how it's done? And he said, yeah, go on down and talk to Ron Budge, who was the, the doyen of Golf Victoria at that time. And Ron Budge walked up and said, oh, you've done club level and you're going to do state level. He said, yeah. I said, yeah, so can I you know, follow one of the referees? And he said, nah, 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 you can do number four match. Yeah. And do it. Uh, so that so I did, and that was that was really the introduction to actually participating as a as a referee. I think just thrown right in the deep end. He threw me right in the deep end. Fortunately, there was no real problems with it, but he threw me right in the deep end. Yeah, wow, well, wow. Can you remember the um, Australian Open venue that you first went to? Uh, where was my first one? Um, I think it might have been Royal Adelaide. Okay. Um, I did your Royal Adelaide. Uh, I I know I've, I I know I refereed at Victoria the year we had the problem with the green. Um, some of the memorable ones where we uh, they had to stop play, they abandoned play because of the pace of a green. Um, I still remember standing on the fifteenth tee with O'Malley, Badley, and um, Charles Howell III, um, saying, "Guys, we've been told to hold play here," and uh, there was significant discussion ensued, and Trevor Hurden was required. Um, to sort out how the players felt about what was going on and uh, subsequently play was cancelled. And uh, the interesting thing about that was Charles Howell the third was six over for the day, play was cancelled, came back, got the next group, the same group the next day, and he shot six under. Yeah. Um, and that was a 54-hole event. I did the Australian um, the year that um, Arnold Palmer came out for it. Um, I did. I, I certainly did Royal Sydney. Um, that was quite. A, that's a nice course, actually. Had to transport Mr. Davis off the course when he pulled a hamstring after about six holes. Um, so yeah, I've, I mean, a little one there. Stephen Leaney hit a ball over the fence, and one of the spectators tried to give it back to him, and he said, "No, that one doesn't work. You can have that." <laughs> Which was typical Stephen Leaney. Did you actually? Uh, Mr. Shearer died recently. Did you? Um... Yeah, I, I, I refereed uh, Bob Shearer and Ian Stanley uh, a number of times. In fact, I hope it's my memory correct. No, I hope I'm just making it up, but it's my memory that I was uh, the actual walking referee on the infamous um, whether I hit the ball or not uh, incident <laughs> with Mr. Stanley, where he put the club on the ground behind it and said he didn't make a stroke at the ball. I didn't see what he did. I mean, I wasn't, you don't stand that close. But yeah, refereed Bob Shearer a number of times. He was fantastic, lovely bloke. Yeah, right. interesting, interesting that um, Peter Fowler, who was playing in those days and playing very well, is still playing the tour. Um, he, he's actively playing the tour. He played the first two rounds um, this year before Christmas, and and is playing really quite well. Yeah, we we saw him and he made the cut at, uh, yeah. at Moona, didn't he? Yep. Yep. I don't think he made the cut at, uh, at Warrigal. I don't think he did. 
that, that was a different... I think he found the hills of Warrigal a little bit much. Maybe he just couldn't... Was he driving the greens like all the other young kids? No, I don't think he was. No, he's certainly not. He was okay off the tee, but he wasn't that long. No, no. That was pretty trippy to see how many people were. Oh, that was scary. I mean, that, that course... I mean, you know, that course was short, but at the same time, they were smacking it. Um, and that's the trouble now, is, is that these kids can hit the ball so far that it's, it's taking some of the courses out of championship play. Oh, even that course that we just saw um, for the Century Tournament of Champions, yeah, Cameron, yeah. Cameron Smith shot 34 under. His worst round was eight under. I know, yeah. Well, I've, I've just watched girls this morning at Victoria at a motor nearly driving the tenth. Wow. And and I mean, that's just taking the it's really I mean, gee whiz. So the guys are waiting on on the green sometimes there. Drive driving the tenth, which is going yeah, uphill. Yeah, yeah. With the um, wind, bit the wind out of the east a bit, but they were they were just absolutely belting it. Wow. Yeah. That's that's huge. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, so we now uh, you got into rules. How did how did we meet? Can you remember that, Darren? How did we met? No. <laughs> I, I memorable. That I was it. We, it was memorable. I think we met um, through Harvey actually, through through Harvey at um, at um, Box Hill when you were doing things at Box Hill. Um, yeah. But I, but I don't I don't have a, a clear recollection of it. Do you? Uh, no, no, I don't. But I do know that we've uh, we've been away to uh, run rules nights together, and uh, you know, well, what we called club level before. Now it's uh, level. Well, we don't uh, level to uh, level one is online, but it used to uh, club level or level one. Uh, yeah, we also did a couple of um, times where we went out to um, mid amateur type tournaments and. And worked with regional referees to ah, like Ballarat, like Ballarat, and and that things like that, and that was actually really good. That worked yeah. really well for those people. Yeah, yeah. And then since then, we've worked together on a few uh, professional tournaments as well. Yeah, yeah. All this, this, we're they're just trying to get those what they can of those going. I, we'll just see how the year transpires with that. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it's um. I mean, you, that's what you sort of do now, isn't it, Barry? Like, like apart, apart. Well, we'll get back to rules, but uh, you play golf yourself. Yeah, but I don't play as much as I should. Um, or as, or as, as high as you'd like, is that what you? Well, no, I just don't play as often as I I, I should. Um, you know, there's a few health issues have intervened in that, but also um, the times I can play golf, I seem to be ending up doing refereeing on the on the Australasian tour or. A, you know, a couple of amateur events. There isn't much amateur refereeing anymore. In fact, I think it's a dying art. Um, but I've been very, very fortunate to be included as part of the PGA team now for for a couple of years, a number of years, and uh, we'll see what the new year holds um, with that. I'm not in Queensland this week, which I'm very pleased about because I think it'll be really hot up there. <laughs> yeah, mi middle of January. That. Yeah, not, not where I want to be in the middle of January. But um, come February, I'm supposed to be doing some more events. We'll see what happens. Yeah. What's your uh, what's your favourite event been of the last uh, couple of years? Oh, funnily enough, I reckon my favourite event in the last couple of years was the uh, WA PGA in Kalgoorlie. 
really weird place to get to. I mean, it took 15 hours to get there. It took us an overnight stop to get home. Um, amazingly interesting golf course in that it's a green golf course carved out of red dirt. Um, really quite a, quite a nice course. And uh, yeah, I, um, I got quite a bit of good experience there. Um, got thrown under the bus by the tournament director to have to do, go on in front of TV and uh, heard Brendan Goddard say, well, the player's arguing with the referee. We weren't, we were discussing where his relief should be, but it was quite a, quite an interesting situation to, to get into because um, I was sitting beside the green with, with Scotty and he said, nah, go on, get on the green, you can go and give this ruling. And the TV was there and everything. It was quite, it was a great tournament actually. Yeah, are they doing that again? This year, where's the WA? Yeah, there's, there's supposed to be a, a PGA in Kalgoorlie and the WA Open. They're meant to follow on from the New South Wales run of events. At the moment, the way the way I've heard it, there's going to be um, there's going to be TPS Rosebud, then Vic Open, followed by TPS Murray at Cobram Baruga, and then TPS uh, Bonnie Doon, then one in the Hunter, then back to the New South Wales Open, and then it's meant to go to New Zealand for two weeks. But I can't, I don't know, I can't see how that's going to happen with our current situation. And then, yeah. it's, to to, then it's meant to go to, to Kalgoorlie and Perth for two weeks. And then Darwin, I can't see that happening either because Darwin shut their borders again. Yeah, right. So, yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll just wait and see where, where we end up with any of that. We might not even end up in New South Wales yet. Who knows? So what's your... Job capacity with the PGA, you just uh, work in the rules, or do you do tournament uh, directing as well? Or no, no, with with um, the PGA, I'm just doing rules. Um, depending on what they need me to do, I'm I'm general dog's body. I might go and put the tees out. I might do the pins on one nine if they need me to. Um, but generally speaking, my job is out of is is inside the ropes, uh, not in the office, um, and I'm out there all day doing the rules. That's what a lot of people don't realise. And you, I don't know whether you've said much about it, but when we're out there, we're out there from the first ball hit to the last ball finished for the day. So that can be 12, 13 hours. And um, that's, that's the job. You're, you're responding to rules. You're, and as you know, um, most of our time is spent marshalling play, I'll put it that way. Um, keeping a check on times and and where people are and that we get through, particularly if television's involved. Have you been doing some uh, much marshalling um, this season or have you found that, uh, well, I mean, you know, oh, did you I find mean, that times got a little bit better at that course that was so short? I think, I, I reckon the Australian PGA Tour have got their times under control. I think the players are really aware of it these days. You drive up in a cart and the first thing they will do is saying, hang on, are we okay? So they're thinking about it. Um, and I, I think the, the, the PGA Tour Australia have really got their, their times under control and the times rarely blow out. Every now and again, they will, but they'll blow out because of a, a weather event or something, um, as we saw at, at Warrigal. And when you get that weather event, your, uh, your timing sheet goes out the window. But the rest of the time, I mean, it seems to be they're they're pretty solid. I, I'm I'm pretty impressed with the way that works. 
what uh what are some of your favorite experiences that you've had on the uh giving rulings or on the tour oh, so far I think, I think walking at the grand walk i remember walking i'll never forget walking at the grand at um in in the gold coast of the australian open there and i had uh Robert Allenby and Brett Ogle in a group together. And as they walked over the hill, uh, Allenby said to me, Barry, do you know what this, this fairway would be really good for? And I said, no, I, I said, no, what do you reckon? He said, growing potatoes in. <laughs> and we walked down, we walked down to the um, to green and he clearly, he put his ball in hazard uh, and, had to take, and had to take a penalty. And he just calmly turned to me and he said, do you think this is my line? I said, yep. And he just, Step back from where he wanted it, dropped the ball, and got on with it. And for a man who can have a reputation of being a little prickly, he 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 was fantastic. But speaking of the same player, probably my best ever experience at one of these tournaments was the Australian Open at Kingston Heath, where Robert Allenby set the course record. Um, and he was going along okay, and he was on one of the greens, and one of the cameramen swung. A, one of those boom cameras over the top of him just as he went to putt and he froze. And I was close enough to the green, fortunately, just to go quietly, uh, Robert, I'll deal with it. And he just nodded his head and stepped back and went on with his putt and he canned the putt. And I went over and had a word, a quiet word to the cameraman of appropriate proportions. And anyway, he walked off to the next par three and walked straight back off the tee down the chute to me and said, um, the green's clear, are we in time trouble? And I said, no, nah, Robert, we've been, I, I said, look at my sheet, we're, we're plus 22, but we've been waiting for 24. So we're actually two minutes under playing time. So let me deal with that, we'll be fine. And he proceeded to go birdie, eagle, birdie, birdie, eagle, birdie. And shot, I think he shot about 64 or something and smashed the back nine at Kingston Heath. It was one of the really memorable events. Um, I, I also, I suppose the other memorable ones is walking with Aaron Baddeley at both of his Australian Opens that he won um, uh, in a group with Colin Montgomery where Baddeley outdrove Colin Montgomery and Colin Montgomery wasn't pleased at all that this young amateur had just smashed him. Um, that, was, that was really quite a highlight. I don't know, work, walking with Ernie Els at, um, at the Grand in, 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 uh, up in... Brisbane. That was an interesting one because um, who was in it? Craig Perry was in the group. And after about five holes, Craig Perry came over to me and I was relatively new to it at the time. And Craig came over to me and said, Barry, have they moved the data marks on the front of the greens? And I sort of looked at him like, Craig, what the hell are you talking about? Because I didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, look, come over here. And on the front of the greens, a little, a little white tee had been greened out and another white tee had been put in. And of course, that was the distance on and left or right. And I thought, oh my God, this is going to be fun. So I was straight on the blower to, to John Hopkins at the time saying, John, can you come out here and have a chat to Craig and clarify this? Anyway, they got it all sorted. I, I didn't hear the answer in the end, but he picked up that there were two tees at the front of the greens. And wanted to know which one was actually applicable or not. So yeah, yeah a few of a, a few. They, I mean, they're they're fairly old ones. Um, the more the more recent ones was those giving those two rulings at um, Kalgoorlie, uh, particularly one where. And and I suppose this really 
comes back to the heart of being a rules official. Um, I was on the, it was on the, I think about, I think it was 15th at, at uh, Kalgoorlie on the back and I had the back nine for the last day and Scotty and I were sitting beside the green and one of the two, the two players were going head to head. There was a shot in it and um, uh, one of them was Felton and Felton had put his ball on the green and this green had a real problem on it that Scotty had put a white line round and we decided needed to be GUR. But the area next to it was probably nearly as rough, but not as bad. Um, in hindsight, it's easy to think of what you would have said, but it didn't have a line around it. So I've gone over um, to, to Felton, uh, walked on the green as Scotty told me to. This is where uh, I said earlier, he said we were having an argument. And I, he said, where do you reckon my nearest point of relief is? And I said, it's over, it's over here. And he agreed. And he said, now, what about all this other stuff? intervening between me and the ball. Why can't I have relief from that? And I'll openly admit the only thing I could think to say was Scotty didn't put a white line around it. <laughs> so and he, he goes, oh, fair enough. And puts the ball down and puts it. But it was just, as I walked off, I thought I should have done better than that. And then we get to the next hole and both players in contention needed rulings on the green and so Scotty's gone again nah go on get you get get on there and after I've come off he, he actually said look I thought it was about time you got on PGA TV so that's why I threw you in there rather than me so anyway they're quite memorable you think uh you know the players the professional players uh how important is it to them that they play by the rules uphold the rules because oh. they gone they don't seem to have much understanding of them i i oh, i reckon i might disagree with you on that i reckon the players have developed over the last 15 years players understanding the rules has developed enormously um 20 years ago when we were doing it when um ian stanley and and all those guys were playing they really resented us being there they thought because they were the professionals and we were blow-ins uh, at that stage, we were the, the scheme of having referees, trained referees had just started and we weren't particularly respected. Uh, and in some cases with really good reason, I'll, I'll say that openly, um, they didn't like us there. But as time's gone on and all these young pros have come through and got used to seeing referees, uh, and, and work with referees, they, they don't have a real problem with it. And I reckon these days, the players know the rules pretty well. The reason they want us in there is they don't want to be penalised for a mistake. They'd rather have it certain. Um, a, a stroke can make all the difference or two strokes or, or can shoot them out of the water. So they'd rather have us uh, give a ruling, which this then then stands, um, uh, and and they respect that. And also, I mean, most of these young players playing today, you like oh, you and I have a refereed coming through as juniors, so they know us. They know the guys at the PGA Tour. They know they're going to get a fair ruling, so they'll call in. They don't have any problem with it, but they do, most of the time, they really do know that they know the rules pretty well. 
Do you think they know the rules or they just want a free relief anytime? No, I don't think so. I think in fact, I think in fact players players will go to enormous lengths not to get relief unless they unless it's really warranted. I, I've seen players play balls where I'm thinking, are you out of your mind? Why aren't you calling for relief? But they'd rather play the ball than be seen to be trying to take advantage of the rules. I've got a feeling that the um, the locker room is a pretty hard place to live if you're seen to be squibbing the rules or squibbing scoring or something else like that. Although you you wouldn't see too many hanging out amongst the uh, the locker room uh, at the moment just because of COVID and social distancing. No, but. Uh, I'm using the locker room in a metaphorical sense rather than all in there together at the moment after a round. Um, I see see a lot of them, you know, fly together, room together, drive together. Yeah. And and there's a lot of, a lot of open discussion between them. And, and it's, I mean, being off the course, talking to them is just as much fun as being on the course, talking to them. And, they're very accepting and, and we, we have a good chat. And that's what that's one of the things that really draws me to doing the doing the job. That we um we get to, you know, talk to players and get treated with respect by players too. So it's not just about the giving the rulings, getting oh, out there no. with the book. No, hell no. That's that's a very minor part of it. I'm I don't do rules with a PGA for for being able to walk up and give someone a ruling. I mean, that's that's a minor part of the job. I, I certainly, in my time at big tournaments when we were allowed to do them, if I can put it that way, um, without going down that path too far, my job, I saw my job with a big group was actually monitoring what was going on. So I was spending as much of my time watching what the gallery was doing and not letting anything interfere with play as I was giving, I mean, I walked, I'd walk, I walked four rounds at an Australian Open without giving a ruling. But the whole time, what I was doing with big galleries was, was watching what's going on and, and looking for that idiot over there that's got his mobile phone out and it's about to get rung on it sort of thing, or somebody walking where they shouldn't walk. Um, I, I see that's the really important of rules of, of having a walking referee with groups is being able to manage what's going on around the group. Um, the rulings are few and far between at that level. And I think, I think that's where it's all fallen down is I think that's what's got forgotten in the whole process. How do you see the, um, the PGA of Australasia uh... At the the tour at the moment in, in Australia, um, taking a bit of a bit of a hit with not being able to, you know, go through a lot of tournaments. Oh, they yeah. they back they back on track now. Or how, how do you think that's? I that's think working? I think I think that the PGA are doing their damnedest to be able to have a local tour. Um, I think uh, Nick Dasty and his team are working incredibly hard to try to get tournaments up. And, and have tournaments to have enough tournaments for the players to to play um, under incredibly difficult circumstances. Um, I I couldn't I, I they just it, the job is huge and it's it's like a shifting minefield for them at the moment. So uh, as as you know, I'm not representing them in any way, shape, or form. But I, I think they're doing uh, from where I'm sitting, 
boy, they're working hard to try and run this the tour through COVID. They did incredibly well to get it in last year. I mean, we had the the last year before we went into shutdown in January. They ran um, the Vic PGA and the Muna Classic, and they judged what was happening amazingly. In and we ended up doing uh, thirty six holes in carts to get the players through the tournament and off the course uh, and to the airport before they shut the borders. And they shut, the players got to the airport between about five and seven o'clock and they shut the borders at eight o'clock. So, I mean, that's the sort of effort that goes into it where they are and what they're doing. I think it's just absolutely amazing. So how vital do you think the Australian tour is for development of golf or development of professional golf? Is there, and is there a difference there in, in Australia? Oh, look, I, I, yeah, look, I think it's absolutely vital. I think it's, it's a critical stepping stone. Um, I can't see many of the young amateurs being able to step straight into an Asian qualifying or a, a European qualifying or a, a US qualifying uh, without the grounding of an Australian tour for a little while. Um, and it, it provides, it, it's, just, it's just vital experience. I mean, we've got some great young kids and, and some of those kids have gone on, um, like Travis Smythe has done really well on the Asian tour this year. And I didn't check the last standing, but he was, he was looking at being in the top 20 to go to Dubai. And I think he would have achieved that. Um, Blake Windred went to Europe and played in a whole lot of satellite events and was finishing top 10 week after week after week, come back here and won the Victorian PGA, um, second week back. Um, you've got guys like that. Um, Harrison Endicott's doing quite well overseas, but, but he, he had the stepping stone of playing in this tour for a little while first. Uh, um, Lucas Herbert, well, look at how he stepped up from, from this tour, starting out in this tour. And we need that. We need those people starring on the international scene. But the only way they're going to get there is there's such a gulf between top amateur golf and professional golf that they need the hardening of the professional golf to get them there. I mean, you, you go to a professional tournament, you're on your own. You, you've got to fight your way through. You don't make the cut. You don't get paid. It's as simple as that. Whereas in an amateur golf, you don't make the cut. You go, oh, well, I'll come back next week and have another go. Do you see something similar along the lines with uh, our referees and our administrators in this game in this country? <laughs> you try to get me into trouble here, don't you? I'm not sure what you're talking about, Barry. I'm just asking the questions. <laughs> I, um, how, do you, how do you see we, our development we had, of administrators? Yeah, we had a fantastic system in Victoria of developing um, competent qualified referees. We also, at the same time, we know had some people who would, who got through that system that weren't the greatest advocates for refereeing when they got out on the course, but the system hadn't developed enough to develop a way of separating those people out and suggesting that they continue to play golf rather than referee it. That's been dismantled in a, in a sense. 
volunteer referees are no longer required at the moment in at, at the higher levels of Australian golf. And my concern is when the brigade like me are too old to do it again, I don't see where the refereeing is going to come from. Um, if I turn to turn it to the other side and say, okay, if they use staff who work in professionally in golf, that's great if they teach them well. But if you look at the turnover of staff in golf administration in Australia in the last two or three years, it's this it's it's been enormous. So you're training a whole lot of people to be referees in the last three years, and they're gone. And now, you so so they just it, it just isn't there. Uh, and if 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 people come, I, to be honest, if people come to me and say, "Should I do level two refereeing and become whatever they want to call it, tournament support staff or anything now?" Uh, because I want to referee, you know, good quality golf. My answer has to be, well, there isn't a future in it. Um, there might be one or two get lucky like me and get a get a gig with the PGA now and again, but there isn't anything else. I mean, there, there literally isn't. The, the only events in Victoria for referees to actually referee at at the moment are the Vic Amateur Finals, the Australian Master of the Amateurs, and the Riversdale Cup basically isn't anything else because it's all it's all done in-house and that it's not using referees i think it's important that yeah, we I, yeah i think i think continue I think, to have well yeah i do i think i think it's a it's a part of the game that's a, it's a part of the game that is as important as anything else it's all it's all part of the fabric we aren't the game but we're part of it um I know I'm getting political there and so be it. Um, it is a part of the game. You need referees at certain times. Um, and you certainly need people who've got really good rules experience at certain times. And you certainly need people who've got good enough rules experience to teach other people about rules. And I think that's where we're falling down is we've dismantled a system where we could be doing that. I mean, all those young young bods that were that were refereeing at national level could have really done with some mentoring by the right people, I think. But anyway, then now I've got myself into real trouble. I couldn't get myself into any more, so it probably doesn't matter. Do you think uh, there are enough? Like you just said, there's sort of three main events. Do you think there are enough events to be able to? You know, even if it's not those three events, the, the events lower than that, do you think there were enough events to be able to um, develop these administrators? Yeah, look, I, I, I think there were enough events to have people out doing rules at them. Um, I'm not sure whether there was a, an economic imperative that, that I mean, I, I wonder how much of it revolves around the the idea that they brought in an expense payment for referees and therefore to have referees covering lots of rules was costing a fair bit of money that that's the only thing i can assume because 
I can't see any other reason why you wouldn't still have referees at all those events. Um, and if there's an economic imperative and say, well, we can't afford to pay these guys $40 a session um, or whatever it was, because that's what it was, I think, um, and it's costing too much money, then you throw it open and say, okay, we're still going to have referees, but it's going to be on a voluntary basis. Um, I think there's a lot of people who are happy to be referees. The idea of there's, there's not many people like, like you and me that are happy to go there at six o'clock in the morning and leave there at eight o'clock in the afternoon and, and do rules all day, like, a la the PGA model. A la a professional referee as opposed a la to... A professional referee, even if we're not getting paid as a professional referee, um, a la a professional referee versus a sessional referee who's a volunteer. But I still think those sessional referees who are volunteers are important. And they may, they may do nothing all day except talk to other people about golf and talk to each other about golf and, and go back to their clubs with, with knowledge and experience. Um, but I still think that's important. I think, I think, I mean, David Greenhill pioneered this and I think David Greenhill is still right. I think it was the way, it was the way to do it. And out of that, you've then got a pool of people that you can look at and go, yeah, well, that one over there and that one over there and that one over there have got the potential to really do things well at a, at a higher level. At the moment, there's no way of finding those people. And, you, uh, you know, what's to say that a newly appointed person in the office of one, some, one of the associations is going to suddenly be a national referee of, of that standing? I mean, I'd, I'd rather have a pool of 50 or 60 people operating just at low-level low amateur tournaments that you can keep an eye on and say, okay, I reckon those four people should be, um, you know, promoted. I mean, you tried to do it with the Queensland Open where you took the, the top five referees in Victoria and said, would you like to come to Queensland at your own expenses? And were, they, were they top five? I thought they, they were rookies. No, no, they were your more extreme. They were your five. Yeah, okay, smart ass. <laughs> uh, yes, they were your top five in Victoria and they still are. Um, it's, it's funny, it's the same five because the, because the words got around that there's nowhere to go. And it used to be, the lure used to be that you could do at least the big open. And if you got lucky, you might get invited to the Australian Open. But that lure, that lure fell over. And there's not, there's not, I mean, you can go to Victoria Vic Open this year and be a Walker scorer if you'd like. Well, you know, there's how many of our tournament support staff are going to do that. Is, it, uh, is Walker scorer not, uh, not what they're looking for? No, I don't think so. I think they want a little bit more involvement than that. We we happily walk score. No question about it. You, you know that for, for a number of years at the Vic Open, um, it turned to us scoring as well. And well, that's interesting. That wasn't a problem. It's interesting that they've asked for a walker scorer since uh, you and I have been involved in the tournaments when the players have been scoring themselves. Yeah, I don't get it because the players are going to be scoring on the nap anyway. Uh, we assume that they will be, or are they going back to the paper card? 
No, because it says only for leading groups. Ah. So I think that's well. I'm gonna. I might even. I'll get my invite. I'll get withdrawn, but I'm not going to do it anyway. So I wouldn't do it anyway. So um, I think that's trying to sort of a bit of an olive branch to the um, players. No, to the um, current tournament support staff. Ah, right. I see. To get them involved at a at a better level than um, emptying the bins. Why do they call them to tournament support staff rather than uh, rules officials? Well, I don't. You can answer that better than I can. <laughs> well, actually, I, I could answer that better than you could, but uh, I want to uh, understand what is it. You know, I met my asked the question before about. Um, you know, are you just doing rules when you go and when you go and do a tournament but you've you've mentioned in a couple of your stories that you you're so much more you know a boom operator you had to go and talk to a boom operator um you know you you're talking to players about holding them up because there's a green that's about to that, that's running wild and they actually had to abandon play which does have a rules element to it but it's also you know the playability of the golf course is there more to being, you know, an administrator on out on the golf course, uh, working from six a.m. to eight p.m. than just doing rules? What else is there that's involved? Well, you you you're when you when you're out there either as if you're out there as a walking referee with a group, you're the manager of the group. Whoever's involved, you're the manager. You're the manager of what's going around or around the group. You're the manager of what's going on the course. You're the manager of deciding whether you need to have a play-up hole or whether a course has become unplayable. And you're reporting back to your tournament director saying, I think we've got a problem here or there's a hold-up over here. We've just suddenly hit two groups on the tee. So there's this whole management issue going on. So when you're in a cart doing it, you're just doing it on a bigger scale. You're managing the whole field of play. Um, but you're not in the office doing the draw and you're not in the office um, managing the paperwork and everything else that's going on, right? And you, you're not in the office doing the scoring unless you're specifically gonna be doing it that day. Um, and you're not in the office putting the banners up and taking the banners down and doing all of that sort of thing. And as I see what, what happened with the tournament support staff is, they wanted, they realized that there weren't a lot of rulings going on. They realized that a lot of our referees hadn't been trained in, well, they'd been trained in the rules really well, but they hadn't been trained in a role of a manager of groups and players, which they probably should have needed. But that's, that's where it didn't go when it should have gone. And they then morphed it to, well, Maybe you can help set up on the day and maybe you can come back and help do the scores and maybe you can help take it all down at the end of the day type of thing. Um, where, and where, maybe, maybe you can be just sent out to do stuff. And it, you know what I mean? It was, it was a... Were people happy to do that or not? They weren't happy to do that. I don't reckon people are overly happy with that. I, I mean, people are putting their hand up and doing stuff. 
because they always have. But I, but certainly there's been a bit of discussion lately that I don't know that people are particularly happy. With. They, they just don't see the role continuing. They just don't see it being viable. Were you happy to do, to do more than just rules? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I was happy to do rules, but I was happy to do it the way the PGA did it, not the way um, other events were doing it. Because yeah. when, I, when I go to a PGA event, I'm part of the team and I'm not told to do things um, in the sense that, can you just dog's body go and do this for us? You're part of the team. And, and if you recognise something needs doing, the, the team responds to it. And, and you're expected to know what you're doing. Um, see, the other, the other thing that be, the, that's really important is that you are, as part of the PGA team, inside the ropes, you're managing pace of play. And that's critical. And how you do that is really important. How you approach players in that sense is, is make or break. Uh, because they're trying to earn a living. And the last thing they need is some guy racing up to them in a cart and saying, you guys are 10 minutes behind, get your asses in gear and get moving, right? Um, there's, there's a way and a time and a means to approaching players about pace of play. Um, whereas in um, other events, non-PGA events, that's not happening. There's no timesheets, but you're expected to sort out whether there's pace of play problems. There's rarely timesheets. Um, there's, there's no hand in how the course is set up. One of the things that really, I understand it talking to people now that when the PGA signs up for a course now, they sign up to have total control of the course. So they have control of green speed, they have control of where the pins go, they have control of where the tees go. When other events take place, that is all left to the club. And that can cause all sorts of interesting issues. As we know, really rapid greens, your pace of play goes out the window. Um, wrongly placed pins, your pace of play goes out the window. Uh, all that sort of thing. So, so it's a very different experience. But the other thing is, at the professional level, to do it, you need you need the experience. And if you haven't got the experience, you're going to stuff it up. I mean, when I was invited to do the final at Gippsland, the one thing that was said to me in the final was, just please don't stuff it up. Those weren't the words that were used, but that was what was the intent of the words. Um, and the problem is where our referees, our volunteer referees are at the moment and where they need to be to operate at that level at even the second tier PGA events isn't there because they haven't had the experience and the training to do it. Yeah, but but tough when there's uh, there's not too many tournaments going on. Well, that's the other problem. I mean, it's, yeah, Garrett, we've been through two years of COVID with with stuff all um, happening, and so in in that sense, it it yeah, it really. Hopefully, when things change and it opens up, it might change. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I, my crystal ball is not working very well at the moment. If, if someone comes to you and says, I want to get into the rules of golf, I want to get into refereeing, what's your, what's your advice to them? My advice is, okay, go and have a look at the level one online. Have a play with it. 
see if you like it. If you're interested in it, then have a have a read up and, and follow through on it. Try and try and get some experience at your club, um, getting yourself involved in some rules situations at your club. Probably um, then contact Golf Australia, um, probably through Brian, um, and and talk to him about possibly undertaking the level two course and doing the level two course and then go back to your club or your local country association or something and see what experience you can get where you can get anything from there but if you think that you're doing it because you want to get to the australian open it's not going to happen unless what Barry? Unless... It's, just not, it's just not going to happen unless you're a young person well, go and get a job. Go and get a job for one of the associations, and you might have a chance. Yeah, you might have a chance, but if you don't do that, it's not going to happen. Not they got they, they got more of a chance of making it by playing to getting themselves there. I that say that's a fair summation at the moment. <laughs> Boy, I'm going to get into trouble over this. I can so see now the trouble I'm going to get to. So, what, why do you reckon the? Uh, I always ask these questions. Why do you reckon the rules are important? Like. You know, it, it's interesting that you refereed hockey uh, because obviously people play to the whistle. Um, yep. If you if you miss something, uh, someone might have got an advantage and someone got a disadvantage. But with golf, it's different. Oh, look, the greatest thing about golf is that it's self-governing. Uh, but it's self-governing to the same set of rules worldwide. So every time anybody goes on a golf course, Anywhere in the world, they're playing to the same set of rules. That's what makes the game great, is that if you're playing in at Birigara or I'm playing at Riversdale or... or Foster. Hey? No, Foster. Or Foster. Or I'm, I'm, or we're playing at St Andrews or we're playing at Dubai. It doesn't matter. It's the same set of rules worldwide for the game. And the other great thing about golf is that for the most part, it is self-regulating. Now, but to write a set of rules that are going to encompass every situation for every golf course and every condition worldwide is necessarily complex. So there are going to be some complexities to the rules. And there are also hundreds of years of great tradition that you don't chuck out just to have a simple game. Um, and a need to be respected. And I think, so I think you do need people who know the finer points of the rules and you need people who particularly know the finer points of the rules and can explain them easily. And that's our role. That's your role, that's my role. That's what I see that. At the elite level, it's about fairness and, and um, equality across the course that we're going to um, make sure that everybody who's playing in that field gets the same opportunity and the same fairness and gets treated in the same way. Um, and that's, I mean, that was one of the arguments that was used to, if I can say, disband the state level rules program in Victoria is that you weren't getting consistency amongst the rules officials. But that's that's like 
sign. No, I won't use that, uh, that analogy. That wouldn't be appropriate here. That's not a reason to disband the program. That's a reason to get rid of some of the referees. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and it seemed to be easier to disband the program than it was to um, weed out the inconsistencies. I mean, one of, one of the classic cases for me was one of the last kick opens we did, I was roving um, with the, the PGA and uh, I was on the back nine of the, um, I think it's the Creek course. And uh, I was on 15, 16, 17, 18. And no, not Creek, Beach course, 15, 16, 17, 18. And I got called out by one of the walking referees and he, I got there on 15 and he said, do you think this is a rabbit scrape? And I've just gone. And there wasn't one rabbit scrape. There were 40 rabbit scrapes. <laughs> there, was a, there was enough rabbit droppings to fertilise your garden. And I'm thinking, what is this clown up to to call me out here to give a ruling on the simplest thing I've ever seen in my life? And the player's just looking at me as if to say, is this guy some sort of zombie or something? <laughs> the player and I have almost burst into laughter. He couldn't make a decision on whether it was a rabbit scrape or not. And uh, I've gone quietly, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. They get well, the, the good thing is, Barry, if he had doubt, he uh, he called someone and oh, rather, the good thing. Oh, the rather, good thing rather than just uh, giving a free ruling for that cat. The catch yeah, droppings. Yeah, but, 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 yeah, I, look, I agree with you. Uh, and it's something that I stress, particularly at the Riversdale Cup, is that it is actually a strength to call the rover, not a weakness. But in that situation, why on earth was that guy rover? <laughs> <laughs> and I've got, I could, I could honestly say, and I'll say it here, I drove straight back to the volunteer shed and I said to Brian Hill, I think you need to remove X's license now. <laughs> And, uh, and give him the old walker scorer job. Is that what's oh, Just don't even let him near the place. I won't name names. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah, it is a strength. I mean, yeah. So we haven't, even, we haven't even touched on the Riversdale Cup. That's a whole other ball game. Well, you're the tournament director at the Riversdale no, Cup. I'm, I'm the chief referee. Oh, um, you cha change your uh, Riversdale time. has all sorts of issues with um, how they designate various people. The Riversdale Cup is a members run event. And as such, is con the captain takes preeminent perform position in what goes on. Um, and there's this toing and froing, a bit of toing and froing each year about whether the general manager is the tournament director or the or the captain is the tournament director and, and what that actually means. But the reality is that the Riversdale Cup, that all the off outside the rope stuff is done by them and all the inside the rope stuff is done by the chief referee. Right. It took 15 years to get it to that stage. They had no rules, it, no rules stuff 15, 20 years ago at the Riversdale Cup. And, and we've got it to where, well, I've got it, we've got it to where we want it. I shouldn't say I've got it to where we want it. And, and we're, we're going around in four hours, 25 minutes. Um, groups of three. Groups of three. Four hours, 25 minutes, rarely over four hours, 40, um, except for... So, a 6,000 metre course, 6,100? Yeah, about, about 6,000, I think, yeah, with with a fair bit of uh, bunkers and a lot of water. A lot of um, hills. 
lot of hills, and I, I'm I'm pretty comfortable with that. And and some really good players. I mean, the young kid who won down at um, at Gippsland the other week, he won the Riversdale Cup about two or three years ago. Yeah, so okay. it's good to see. But yeah, but but we've we've developed that as a as a site of teaching referees and and got got a panel of about 12 referees that come in and actually sit out on the course and do what we do at the PGA. Um, and it works really well. It gives them responsibility and they all learn. And uh, as a result of that, there's a really good example of that. We've got, we've got one of our, our lady members um, who has only recently done her level two, uh, but, but stands out. As, as, as a you know one of those people that you pick out and say this one's one this one's one to work with and she's doing a motor this week now and I've suggested to Brian that she be added to to the other group um, I don't know what's going to happen there but I don't know that she's going to be particularly interested in trying to run events more develop her refereeing side of things yeah. and she, she's very very good and we, there's probably another one or two as well in the wings so, I mean, that's just a really good opportunity to, to bring a few people on. Yeah, nice. And I'm bringing in all the outside people as well, which is good. Yeah. Yeah. Now, <laughs> talking about a lot of tournaments, but uh, if I to, uh, ask you some specific rules questions, like uh, what I'll probably, rules... I'll probably bugger them up. Well, actually, I was going to ask you what rules you'd change, and uh, we'll get to that in a second. But... I did want to actually, it just popped in my head. Um, you know, you talk about, we all play about by the same rules, no matter where we go. Uh, is that the same, you know, amateur and professional rules are effectively the same, although there are, as you and I know, uh, could be up to 20 changes um, based on local rules and um, terms of the competition, stuff like that. Yeah, the, the, the PGA hard card changes a few things. Um, the actual PGA local rules on the day don't change much at all. Um, they, they're very, they, they, they explain a couple of things for more for, for, for what, knowledge, you know, like out what, of bounds and things like that. Like what rabbit poo is. Yeah, yeah, no, where out of bounds might be and stuff like that. The one thing that's popped up on the PGA one at the moment is the, um, the model local rule about the ball spinning back out of the hole and hitting you, right? Um, which is only a, mo a local a model. It's only in if you make it one, and the PGA have in, have enforced that. Um, the PGA also changed their modify the rule on the use of um, green reading devices, oh, right? And, and, and that's for any tournament worth less than a million dollars. Actually, um, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, just want to explain that one again there. Yeah, well, under the rules of golf, you're allowed to use distance measuring devices in, in golf now. It's, it's a standard rule of golf. And the PGA uh, only allow distance measuring devices in tournaments worth le less than a million dollars. So there's professionals out there that can use um, lasers, GPS devices, that yep. kind of thing? In, in, all of their, in all of their events at the moment, the way it's structured in all of their events, except the Australian PGA, as, as I take it, because that's a million-dollar tournament this week. But and every can, other tournament on, on the tour isn't. Can they share the uh, information that they find from the, G, uh, from the laser with their fellow competitors? 
Well, I don't see that that's any different from having a yardage marker on a on the top of a sprinkler. So that's public knowledge. So that's uh, that's all good. I reckon it is. Yeah, and you're fact, right. It's true. And, and in fact, not only that, it's often that's what they use to work out who shot at his next. That's that's right. That's right. And in fact, in match play, that's really good because you quietly say, what did you get? What did you get? Okay, it's yours. <laughs> so uh, my question um, was actually along the lines of, there is that slight difference between professional and, and amateur golf uh, about not the rules, but the local rules. Is that in hockey? Is that something similar in hockey? Did, was there anything in... No, I would have said the rules of hockey were the rules of hockey. Yep. There's um, no local rules for no, international. No, there's no local rules it per se. Um, the rules of the rules of play are the rules of play. There are there there are differences of interpretation worldwide. Right. In how how but they try to they tried they try to iron that out the best they can. But there's always going to be differences of how you interpret the wording of something. Um, and I mean, I can't think of an instance particularly in golf where that applies, but um, yeah, I mean, it's possible that, that how you how you read it um, determines it. But no, the rules, the rules are the rules are the rules. Okay. No, I just uh, you know, I re do well. I remember playing hockey a little bit back when I was uh, a youngster, and I, th I think it might have been done by the time I started. But there was the rule where you weren't allowed to swing the stick above your shoulder. Yeah, no, that disappeared. You do your showing your age. Early was that early two thousands that it disappeared? Oh no, yeah, that no, that was gone before that. I did junior hockey; it might have stayed, but uh, well, see, there you go. So something like that might have might yeah, have been well, a, a local rule for certain. Yeah, it could have been. It could have been. Um, I mean, the sticks rule went with lace up boots and roll ins. Got you. Got you. You don't even. You wouldn't even know about roll ins, would you? Uh, not Rollins, but I do know lace-up boots. Yeah, no, well, they used to before, in the days before you put the ball on the sideline and pushed it in, they used to roll it in. Ah, no, didn't know that one. By hand. By hand. Right. That's going, way, going way back to right. the sticks and everything like that. I know. I keep my hand out of it if there's a hockey yeah. stick going anywhere near. Well, they used to stop penalty corners by hand. Ah, right. Yeah, and... Uh, I still never forget it. Um, one David Wandsborough and Jay Stacey, who uh, way back, but um, Stacey was hitting the penalty corner and Wandsborough was stopping, and uh, Wandsborough didn't get his hand out of the way quick enough, and Stacey smashed him. Oh wow! Well, yeah, I'll never forget that. Playing, I think it was Campbell playing someone, and oh, geez, he whacked him, broke his Ouch. hand. Yeah, because well, right. Stacey must... had the hardest hit in golf. In, in in hockey, in hockey, yeah, yeah. He, they both of them. Wandsworth went on to captain Australia for like ever, and Stacey did too, and then went on to coach. So yeah, right. Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, again, uh, again, back to the rules. What rule would you change, Barry, if you were able, able to change? To, being able to hit a provisional ball for a ball in a hazard, just simple pace of play. Right. At the and moment, then, and then what would you do if you hit a provisional ball? And you found your ball in the penalty area and you found your ball provisional out in the middle of the field, you, you get the option of which one you want to play. No, I think if you if you find your ball in the penalty area, you must pr proceed under the the same as the same as if you hit a provisional ball for a ball out of bounds or a ball that might be lost, 
and you find your ball, then you must proceed with your ball. So if you hit a ball for a provisional ball for a ball in a hazard and you, you decide that the ball is in the hazard, then you must proceed under the hazard rule. You can, well, you can still either play it or take rule 17.1D. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. The, the provisional okay. ball then is out of play. Okay, but you do you can you choose not to look for it and then it just goes straight to the provisional? Is that well? I, I don't have a problem with that at any time. You, there's nothing in the rules that says you've got to look for your ball. Yeah, um, yeah. Your, your opponent might want to look for the ball if you're playing match play, but that's yeah, yeah. yeah. You make it sound so simple. It's an interesting thought that well, they've done that already. I reckon, I reckon it is incredibly simple, and it's a it's an absolute pace of play issue. Because if you get down there and you're and you're going to argue with me that your ball might be in the hazard, but it might be in that long grass over there next to the hazard, and we can't locate my ball, and I didn't hit a provisional, then I've got to go back to the tee. And if I'd hit a provisional, regardless of whichever one it was, I've got a ball to continue with. And I've got the same number of strokes anyway. I mean, and I had this discussion when we were in Brisbane for the level three and the R and I were having none of it. It's the one thing they did not want to, they not, we are not going to change that one. But anyway, we'll see. Maybe one day it will. That's, that's an obvious one to me. It's interesting because we are allowed to mark our areas, not just have to, they don't just have to be water. We are allowed to mark pretty much any area within inside the course, uh, a penalty area now. So um, you do see a lot more red lines and red stakes and stuff like that. So it's a wonder that, you know, that hasn't been thought to be yeah, bought in. Well, we did that. We did that down at, at Muna for the Vic PGA, where we yeah, had to right. use the Legends course on the first two days where we'd marked a couple of areas as red lines. Even though they're hills. Even though they were hills, you know, with trees on them because it would just gave pace of play because it gave the players an option. Yeah. If they pushed it through the, the fairway too far. The one we didn't mark, we should have, was uh, 14, where they were pushing it right over into the you know, that sandy area all the time. And I actually said to Langers later, we really should have put a red line around that. Yeah. It would have just simplified the whole day's play uh, with, with, when that raging wind was in and it was just blowing everything in there. Next next year they'll do it. Oh, we'll do it, and uh, yeah, and they'll uh, the wind will blow the other way, and they won't have done the other side, and we'll be stuck on the other side there. Yeah, there's a bit of grass there to look for balls. Uh, well, the, actually, considering that wind, because that wind was a southeaster, wasn't it? Yeah, and it blows. Very, which is a very weird, strange wind. But well, I've never been so cold on a summer's day on a course in my life. Oh well, I I love it because I always wear pants and long stuff so i'm always got my beanie on even though it's even though in the sun it's 27 degrees and in the shade it's 19 or whatever i had um, four layers of clothes on and i was still cold the uh that, that's one of the hazards of being a, a referee you're always yeah, out in the cold yeah. although we we still had the tops on our cart so that was fine yeah well scott it's one of the things scotty warned me about was when when i was getting to the pga stuff was buy yourself the best bit of weather gear you can and make sure you wear it yeah exactly well it's interesting i was going to say if the if the wind had turned around it would have gone the other side but because it was that southeasterly and we got all those balls going right off the 14th 
we had a lot of balls, a lot of balls going left off the 13th, which runs parallel. And so yeah. the, wind, the wind was blowing it into the, uh, you know, because as you know, it was a pro-am, so we had a lot of amateurs uh, playing. So there were a lot of lost balls left on 13 and right on 14. So yeah. maybe maybe both those parts could be me- uh, made red penalty areas next year, but we'll, we'll see might, what happens. It wouldn't be a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it just, it's just about pace of play. Yeah, do you think, uh, you know, there will be any rules that change in 2023? We've got, uh, what, less than 365 days until we find out. Um, no, I, I, I haven't really thought about it much. I, um, But, I, yeah, I, I can't see that they're going to particularly fiddle with anything. I think the possibly the one about the ball coming back and hitting you on the green might become a rule of golf rather than a... D7. Yeah, might become a... A, a full full rule rather than a local rule. Have um, you seen that happen? The uh, bounce off something and come and hit until, you? Or? Not until they put it in as a local rule, and then it happened straight away. When was that? I, one of the two, I, I, I can't remember. It was one of the things where they just put it in, and it, it just happened. And I've gone, oh my god. <laughs> okay, there you go. And what it is is a player stepping up to tap a ball in and hits it too hard, it flings slingshots around and comes back and hits his foot. Well, okay. I mean, it could even bounce off the flag and hit with, yeah, with his yeah, or something. Yeah. But anyway, I can't see them having a whole lot of changes at this stage. Yeah. So what, what are some other... Uh, have you got any other stories for us, Baz, before we oh, sign off? I don't know. What's the... What, what, oh, tell, I, I, can, can you tell I, me about I, I, the weather I, I, situation? Uh, we, we were in Gippsland the other day, but can you tell me about oh, the weather, weather situation about two years ago? Oh, your lawn. lawn. We had the Super 6 at your lawn. And they, what year was it? Uh, it's two years ago, isn't it? So it's 2018, is it? Uh, hang on, I'll, I can tell you here. I can look and have a look and tell you. Where is it? Uh, it must have been 2019 at your lawn. So end of 2019, yeah. Yeah, yeah. first Super 6, it was in October. Um, they'd had 75 mil of rain in two days on the weekend before, so the course was already saturated. Yeah, uh, it was as wet as um, if you drove a cart the wrong way, you were going sideways down there. And we got down there and we got play started. That was fine. Uh, and it started to rain. And it kept raining. And I think we came off. I think we came off the course 15 times in three days. 15 times. Yes. Yeah. We. We came off and got back out. We came off and got back out. We finished round two at eight o'clock on Saturday night. And we needed to get round, do a cut and get round three plates. So they abandoned the super six segment of it to get 54 holes in because if they don't get 54 holes, it doesn't count as a tournament. They don't get paid. So we, um, they, the powers that be, said, no, we'll abandon the Super 6 segment of it and we'll do a cut to 50 players and we will try and get the round in the next day. And they did. How we did it to this day, I do not know. I have never been so wet in all my life. I I assigned a part of the course and I think I was standing out, at one stage I was standing out beside the 12th green and it's pelting down. And Scotty comes over the radio and says, Baz, how's the 12th green going? And I said, oh, look, there's three balls on the green, but there is a, I think there's a spot they can still go to to putt. 
and I waited the players walked up and the players got to the green and I've gone nah 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 Scotty I got on the radio and I said, nah, Scotty, look, I cannot see how these players can have a fair putt on this green at the moment. And Scotty goes, okay, everyone got their hooters? Three, two, one, stop play. And I'm thinking, holy catfish, I hope I got this right. Because I just stopped the pro tournament. <laughs> and it was right. I mean, it, it just proceeded to... to come on down again and in we went and out we went and in we went and out we went for three days but we got it fun i've never they had i think they had another 75 mils over those three days it just wow. rained and rained and rained and then when it started to rain at warrigal i think a few people were looking up going what is it with being down here doing a tournament <laughs> we saw it all coming again yeah, well, they were, luckily that was on the Saturday when I'd already left. So um, yeah, it got a bit wet. I could tell you, it was, it was, it was, oh, it the thunder, nice. the lightning, there's lightning, and they're saying, oh, the lightning's are so many kilometres away. Oh, the lightning's so many kilometres away, and they hear boom, and and someone goes, can you guys ring that siren, please? <laughs> and they did, and we were off. I've never seen the players move so fast. What <laughs> they were out of there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I had that at the big open too down at, uh, I was right down the back, back of 11 with a ladies group on where we had a storm come in and you could see. That, well, that was on the Saturday about 2016. Wasn't yeah, it? you could see this storm coming in and anyway, there was a flash of lightning and my group took off. They didn't wait yeah. for to be called. The, two, the, the ladies just turned to me and said, that's lightning, we're out of here. Yeah, and I remember. And I, I remember having to drive, I remember having yeah. to drive uh, out to, 11 or 12 or whatever and yeah well the good pick, thing about, pick up some players and bring them back in but it was such an yeah. that was such an interesting storm the good thing about warrigal was that they um they the members got in their carts and got out and got everyone in really quickly so we yeah, right. ferry people i mean we had one of those at the big pga when it was played at heritage one year we had a pure blue sky and this little cloud in the distance and half an hour later, this little cloud in the distance had come up the valley and was absolute thunder and lightning out of nowhere. Just came out of nowhere. And we had to come off then too. So, yeah, we have some interesting times. Yeah, we, weather, weather certainly puts a... Yeah, we came off... We came a, bit off of, the, a bit of a dampener, you should you yeah, say. Yeah, very good. Well, we came off at the Riversdale Cup one year for for that big, one of those big storms we had, and we had hail the size of golf balls and looking out from the clubhouse down the 18th, it looked like a ski slope at Mount Hotham. Yeah, wow. I've never seen anything like that. It ripped the course to shreds. Yeah. And David Mason, give him his credit, great supervisor, uh, superintendent, he got the course up and playable again. I don't know how he ever did it. It was just so much damage. Anyway. Right. Well, I uh, that's been... Fantastic, Barry. Thank you very much for sharing all of that. Um, now, do you have a question, a rules question for episode yeah, I'll, 54? I'll pose, question, I'll pose a rules question for you. A ball lying in longish grass um, on a boundary where the boundary is marked with a white line and the ball doesn't appear to be touching the ground. 
It could be, but it's indeterminate really whether it's touching the ground. It, it could be, it's close enough to be considered probably touching the ground. The ball is outside the line, but is overhanging the white line itself. So the question arises, because the ball is touching the boundary line, is the boundary line the outside of the white line or the inside of the white line? And therefore, is the ball out of bounds or is it in bounds? Episode 54, GRQ of the week. I say week, but uh, I think I do this podcast more yeah, once a month, so it should be rules of, rule question of the, of the month. But, uh, thank you very much, Barry. That's a, that's a tricky little one you've uh, posed there. So... Uh, have you got anything else you, you'd like to say in, in your space? I look forward to when we next work together. I'm not sure when yeah, that no, I, I don't know when it'll be, but hopefully it'll be soon. And uh, I hope I haven't bored everybody. No, I'm sure you probably, have. But, probably uh, have. You probably <laughs> have no worries about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's been it's been fun and, and yeah, really enjoyable. It's been great. Thanks, David. No worries at all. Uh, I'm sure yeah. I'll get you, get you back on here. Uh, really soon. I hope uh, you can get back to having uh, yeah, a lot of work and a lot more tournaments uh, for the rest of the summer. Yeah, let's hope this summer pans out with a few tournaments now and we can get things going. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you very much for sharing all your stories and, and your time with me, Barry. Thanks, Blakey. Cheers, everyone. Cheers.